0: CHAPTER Seven: THE ISSUE IN COMMON GRACE A central fallacy in contemporary Calvinist thinking comes to focus in the common grace issue. The problem, however, is not new, and the outcome, historically, has been monotonously similar. It was an issue in the New England theology, where the expression, the grace of nature, or some remainder of the natural image of God, left in man after his fall was used. The Orthodox party pushed the conception of sin to great extremes in order to preserve the sovereignty of God, while others, trying to do justice to the realities of the human situation, moved steadily into Unitarianism. In England, there was also a notable drift from Calvinism into Unitarianism, a correlation so often noted that some scholars have futilely attempted to find elements of Socinianism in Calvin to account for it. If the answer is not to be found in Calvin, what then is it in Calvinism that creates the recurrent problem and a gateway to heresy and false orthodoxy, whenever the question of the restraint of sin in the ungodly and their performance of works of civil righteousness comes up? Why, when Calvinists begin by accepting the sovereignty of God, do they then founder on the question of the natural man's manifestations of goodness? And why is this particular problem a signal, historically, of the imminent breakup of the Calvinism at hand? The ostensibly orthodox Calvinists won the argument in New England, but they did not live to celebrate it. They were destroyed by the nature of their victory. To understand this issue and its gravity, let us examine the controversy as it has developed within the Christian Reformed Church in America. Here the struggle came to focus in the works of Herman to Hoxima, the growing interest in common grace spelled death for Calvinism. As he viewed it, this broad-minded party, it must be recorded, did not appear to have any sympathy with the views of Dr. Abraham Kuyper Sr., until they discovered that his theory of common grace offered them a philosophy that would support their latitudinarian views in the name of Calvinism. The antithetical conception of Kuiper, they fairly disdained, Common grace became the warp and the woof of their life view. Calvinism and common grace became synonyms. Only they that believed and emphasized the theory of common grace were the true Calvinists. And all that opposed them and refused to believe and proclaim this theory of common grace, they proudly and disdainfully branded as Anabaptists. By a dexterous hocus-pocus, Calvinism, always known the world over for its doctrine of predestination and particular grace, had been changed overnight into a philosophy of common grace. Those who made this discovery and propagated this conception of Calvinism were, generally speaking, the men of religion and culture, which was the name of a magazine they published and in which propaganda was made for the broader views. Hoxma thus clearly believed that the Reformed faith was at stake and only by a denial of common grace and any so-called civic righteousness on the part of the natural man could that faith be maintained. The decision, however, went against Hoxma in the Synod Action of 1924, and the three points on common grace were formulated by that body. The three points asserted, first, that God has a favorable attitude towards mankind in general, Second, that there is a restraint of sin in the life of the individual and in society. And third, that touching the performance of so-called civic righteousness by the unregenerate, the Synod declares that according to Scripture and the Confession the unregenerate, though incapable of any saving good, can perform such civic good. The controversy, however, did not end with the exodus of Hoxima and the formation of the Protestant Reformed Church nor was it limited to the writings of Hoxima. The telling analysis of the controversy, as made by Van Til, brought the issue again to the forefront. Van Til subscribed fully to the three points, but the attack was launched with fury by some of those who subscribed to Common Grace. Why the virulence of this attack when Van Til wrote as a champion of Common Grace? No attempt will be made here to go into the details of the controversy, nor to give a summary of Van Til's thought. His thinking on the subject can be found not only in his book, Common Grace, 1947, but his subsequent pamphlets, a letter on common grace, particularism and common grace, and common grace and witness-bearing, and in his many syllabi. Our attempt will be rather to analyze the basic presuppositions of both parties in terms of Vantil's basic presupposition as well as his developed philosophy. We do, in a sense, deal with the issue in considering the problem of inspiration and dictation, as well as the meaning of inspiration. Can God and man both act, or does the free activity of the one eliminate the possibility of the free activity of the other? If men are predestined to damnation, can they act freely, and can they perform works of civil righteousness? Or, on the other hand, if the unregenerate perform works of civic righteousness and act with apparent freedom, can we speak of an election to reprobation? Historically, the problem has been answered in two ways, and both answers have foundered Calvinism. Men have felt that the only way to answer the problem is either to obliterate God or man, or, at the very least, seriously to limit them, beyond the scope of Scripture. This is Huximov's Dilemma. He is desperately concerned with retaining the reformed faith and asserting the sovereignty of God. Predestination is therefore for him rightly a hallmark of faith and an evidence of sound theology. But his conception of predestination is mechanical and external. God's predestination and providence, his decree, do not operate simultaneously and coextensively with man's whole life and being, but externally. In a commencement address, delivered on June 9, 1953, on Man's Freedom and Responsibility, Hoxima stated, The real and scriptural conception of the relation between man's freedom, on the one hand, and the sovereign counsel of God, on the other hand, is this, that the freedom and the responsibility of man are hemmed in from every side of the counsel of God. Have before your mind a circle, representing the counsel of God. In that counsel of God stands the morally free and responsible creature that is called man. And that counsel of God hems him on every side. Again, Hoxima clearly stated, I always say, beloved, give me God, if I must make a choice. If I must make a choice to lose God or man, give me God. Let me lose man. It's all right to me. No danger there. Give me God. That's reformed. And that's especially Protestant reformed. Noble as this may sound, it is clearly unsound and unscriptural, definitely not reformed. Scripture does full justice to God and to man. It never loses, man nor eliminates him. a stand, far from being defense of the faith, is once again its death kneel. Only biblical thought can survive, and only biblical thought is realistic. Here we see clearly the recurring problem of defective Calvinism. It believes that God alone can act freely. For man, to act freely is to limit God. Because it has no understanding of the analogical nature of man's thinking and activity, nor of the nature of the divine decree, it insists on thinking univocally, and all thinking, human and divine, and all activity is conceived of as creative. Thus man is made a rival to God in a very real sense, and a life and death struggle ensues in which one must obliterate the other. In Scripture, man's ethical rebellion and attempt to be as God does not constitute an actual metaphysical rivalry, nor does it constitute an active rivalry with God but falls within his decree and providence. However limited the scope and argument of either party, the logic inherent in either position leads to the obliteration of God or man. Thus, to argue with Hoxma on the one hand, or with Dane and Masselinck on the other, in terms of their ideas, is to be involved in their folly. One must challenge their presuppositions. This Van Til does. He calls attention, in answering Massilink, to the confusion between the metaphysical and ethical aspects of man's being and the metaphysical and ethical approaches to the common grace question. He challenges the false bifurcation between human activity and divine activity as two watertight compartments, and points out clearly that all created activity is revelational of God. Without thus making all created reality revelational of God, the ethical reaction of man would take place in a vacuum. If man could press one button on the radio of his experience and not hear the voice of God, then he would always press that button and not the others but man cannot even press the button on his own self-consciousness without hearing the requirements of God. The answer is not found in any attempt to obliterate or limit either God or man, but in biblical realism, which recognizes the creative activity of God and presupposes the divine decree as the ground for man's every activity, including his spontaneity and freedom. On any other basis, man and God are made rivals as ultimates and placed in a metaphysical conflict. As Van Til puts it, either presuppose God and live, or presuppose yourself as ultimate and die. That is the alternative with which the Christian must challenge his fellow man. This constitutes the one proof of God, the proof which argues that unless this God, the God of the Bible, the ultimate being, the Creator, the Controller of the universe, be presupposed as the foundation of human experience, this experience operates in a void. This one proof is absolutely convincing. With this approach, Van Til has done justice to biblical thinking, has upheld God's sovereignty and the integrity of human experience, and has established common grace within the context of the divine decree. But this latter is precisely his offense common grace has again become an instrument whereby man can enter a heretical toe into the Calvinist door. In the name of common grace, God's sovereignty is limited by insisting that common grace is not to be understood in terms of the divine decree and within the framework of predestination, but as an area of freedom beyond God and outside the scope of his decree. It is construed, therefore, as an area of autonomy for man. Van Til has argued directly against this, and emphasized its danger in his debate with Masselinck, who has attempted to use the concept of common grace to create neutral ground between the regenerate and unregenerate, and thereby establish a philosophy of science. I argued that on the basis of such an apologetics as old Princeton furnished us, we were still on an essentially Romanist rather than on a reformed basis. For it is of the essence of Romanism to argue with the non-believer on the ground of a supposedly neutral position. No reformed person could espouse such a position and then honestly claim that his position was uniquely Calvinistic and as such calculated to save science. In this context, I contended that a doctrine of common grace that is constructed so as to appeal once more to a neutral territory between believers and non-believers is, precisely like old Princeton apologetics, in line with the Romanist type of natural theology. Why should we then pretend to have anything unique? And why then should we pretend to have a sound basis for science? Nothing short of the Calvinistic doctrine of the all-controlling providence of God, and the indelibly revelational character of every fact of the created universe can furnish a true foundation for science. And how can we pretend to be able to make good use of the results of the scientific efforts of non-Christian scientists if, standing on an essentially Romanist basis, we cannot even make good use of our own efforts? Why live in a dream world, deceiving ourselves and making false pretenses before the world? The non-Christian view of science, a. presupposes the autonomy of man, b. presupposes the non-created character, i.e., the chance-controlled character, of facts, and c. presupposes that laws rest not in God but somewhere in the universe. Now, if we develop a doctrine of common grace in line with the teachings of Hep with respect to the general testimony of the Spirit, Then we are incorporating, into our scientific edifice, the very forces of destruction against which that testimony is bound to go forth. The concept of neutral ground assumes an area of creation which is outside the government of God and can be interpreted without Him and apart from Him. For the consistently Christian thinker, there can be no possibility apart from God, who is not surrounded by, but is the source of possibility. Whenever and wherever an area of possibility apart from God is posited, and an area of brute factuality and chance, and this area accordingly made the area of common grace and common ground between man and man, then the doctrine of creation is set aside, and common grace is ultimately equated with common divinity and common being. Not all proponents of common grace on such grounds are aware of the final implications of their position. Many are earnestly convinced that it is the Reformed faith they defend, but such, nonetheless, is the meaning of their stand. Calvin, as Vantil points out, distinguished between proximate and ultimate causes. Historical causes have genuine meaning just because of God's ultimate plan. God reaches down into the self-consciousness of each individual. To those who believe that human and divine activity are both creative and that they cannot be simultaneous and coextensive, it is impossible to speak satisfactorily without either surrendering the sovereignty of God or the reality of secondary causes such as the integrity of man's will. Their logic requires a surrender of either God or man. Let us, rather than try to meet the objector's desires for supposed consistency in logic, Not deny the fact of God's revelation of his general favor to mankind or the fact of God's wrath resting upon the elect. To meet the objector and satisfy him, we should have to deny the meaning of all history and of all secondary causes. We should need to wipe out the difference between God and man. To the objector, it is contradictory to say that God controls whatsoever comes to pass, and also say that human choices have significance. Any attempt to limit the particularism of God's grace and decree and to establish possibility outside of God by saying that men can be saved or lost apart from God says far more than the objector is willing to say. Either God is God or he is not God. Either he governs all things or else, like unregenerate man, he struggles in an alien universe, seeking to impose his will on a hostile area of possibility. As Van Til summarizes it, on the basis, God himself is involved in the realm of possibility. How then can he even make salvation possible for any one man, let alone making it possible for all men? If God is not the source of possibility, then he cannot make salvation possible for men. And if he is the source of possibility, then he is the source because he is in control of all actuality. We have seen that behind the common grace controversy lies the false alternative, either God or man. Hoxima's answer was, If I must make a choice to lose God or man, give me God. Let me lose man. The Synod of 1924 made such a choice impossible by its decision. Its decision, however, while wise, is only an elementary formulation. Even as the Apostles' Creed was an early statement of faith and fully valid, yet not definitive enough to eliminate heretical opinions on the nature of Christ, so are the three points of 1924, valid but far from complete. The creeds of Nicaea and Chalcedon were necessary to give more specifically the Orthodox Christology. They did not constitute a criticism of the Apostles' Creed, but were a development of the Orthodox faith. In like manner, the three points are to be regarded as only the beginning, but a valid beginning, of the definition of common grace. Such a development is resented by those who are unwilling to think, even as in the early church many felt that Paul unnecessarily complicated the simple faith. Peter, in commenting on the fact that these unstable men distorted Paul's writings, aptly commented that they did the same also with the rest of Scripture. The three points, then, are the beginning. As such, they have wisely eliminated as the controversy which precipitated their formulation required, those who with hoaxma said, Let me lose man. Even as the supposedly orthodox party in New England, by turning total depravity into absolute depravity, and by denying common grace decided to lose man, so the current champions of a wooden and unbiblical orthodoxy are ready to drop man. On the other hand, however, the three points do not deal with the other party, those who are ready to say, as against hoxema if I must make a choice to lose God or man, give me man. Let me lose God. The offense of Van Til's common grace was that, although affirming the decision against Hoxema, he went further and pointed out that a biblical doctrine of common grace means also the exclusion of those who choose man to the limitation of God. On this ground, the heat and passion manifested against Van Til becomes understandable. By reviving the common grace question and extending its scope, he eliminated the hiding place of a group whose discrepancy with the faith had not yet been dealt with. Dane, in the name of Calvinism, objects to God's eternal decree as the point of departure and the ontological trinity as the basic principle of interpretation. Throughout his book, he finds the sovereign and self-contained God an abstract and incomprehensible starting point and prefers instead a Christological or relational one. While himself assuming an existentialist starting point, he wildly charges Van Til with being an existentialist, a Kantian, and a follower of Kierkegaard, a fact which, if true, would certainly be welcome news to Barth and Bruner, who find in Van Til their most formidable opponent. At Nicaea and Chalcedon, Christology was used as a line of defense for the natural man. Ostensibly in defense of now the humanity and then the deity of Jesus Christ, opinions were introduced which tended to the paganizing of the gospel and the reassertion of natural man's rights by devious means. Since the Reformation, a new line of defense has been in process of formation the grace of nature or common grace. The locale of the struggle has changed from age to age, but the battle remains the same. In Dane, we have a bold assertion of the rights of natural man against God. His attack has two central emphases. First, on the invalidity of the concept of the self-contained God and his decree as definitive for theology and a proper starting point. And, second, that possibility and existence can be defined independently of God and that man, accordingly, has possibilities apart from the decree of God. By making God's eternal decrees his point of departure, Fantil cannot do justice to his own fine emphasis that common grace must be understood in reference to the moving stream of time. God's eternal decrees are timeless, and when they are made the basis of the common grace problem and the point of departure for our reflection on the problem, the whole matter will remain within the sphere of the timeless. Here again, as with Hoaxama, the basic fallacy is apparent and obvious. God and man are placed in watertight compartments, so that God's activity cannot be simultaneous and coextensive with man's, and at the same time determinative. Because God's eternal decree is timeless, the common grace question, dealing as it does with the moving stream of time, must be understood in terms of time only, because God's eternal decree is hopelessly trapped in the sphere of the timeless. But if Dane is correct here, then the God of Calvinism, the God of Scripture, is a myth, or at best, hopelessly trapped in the sphere of the timeless with the regard to all things. God then becomes completely irrelevant to man, and his existence or non-existence is merely an academic question in view of his obvious inability to enter history. Dane's answer to this, like the answer of Kierkegaard and Barth, is the Christ event. For the ontological trinity, the self-contained, sovereign, and absolute God beyond history, it substitutes a Christ who comes. Not out of the ontological trinity and the divine decree, but as an assertion of possibility against a background of brute factuality. This existentialist God is not the God of Scripture, nor the God of the confessions. But Dane tries to show a need for such a theology by declaring that a God who makes an eternal decree and is the source of all possibility is automatically one who is limited to the timeless because he makes time impossible. Therefore, for Dane, Man must have a real and metaphysical independence from God in order to have any valid freedom. The divine decree and real obedience or disobedience are irreconcilable. The divine decree and human freedom are not to be both maintained. Possibility must be defined independently of God. How clearly he asserts this to be seen throughout his book. So much so that he can consider the atonement itself not in terms of the divine decree, but in terms of possibility apart from God. It is only by ignoring the real possibility of obedience at the time of the fall that Van Til can maintain that the purpose of the general offer in pre-fall time was the differentiation of mankind in elect and reprobate. Van Til has defined possibility as that which is co-extensive with the counsel of God. Thus, in this conception, there are no real possibilities except those which already are or shall be actualized. Van Til regards it as inconceivable that the counsel of God should include genuine possibilities that do not become actualities in history. Such a conception of possibility is sheer determinism and cannot be reconciled with the traditionally held position that Adam was created with the freedom not to sin nor does the bible speak as though all unactualized possibilities are unreal and non-existent possibilities jesus in gethsemane did not act on the principle that there are no possibilities but those which are in fact actualized also paul's statement in 1 corinthians chapter 2 verses 7 and 8 we speak god's wisdom in a mystery which god foreordained before the worlds unto our glory which none of the rulers of this world hath known for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of Glory. As Van Til aptly comments, here again Dane assumes, with Kierkegaard, that finite existence is a concept that must be defined independently of God. It must not be defined in terms of God. Dane wants the independence of man apart from the counsel of God. For his deviation, Hoxima was properly challenged and left the Christian Reformed Church. Dane, for his deviation, has not yet been brought to task, while the church has seen many voices raised against Van Til, not a member of that communion. This is regrettable, but not surprising, but characteristic of the church as a whole in many an age since Paul's day, for there is unhappily reason to believe that man often has more friends in the church than God has. Although the battle remains the same, the locale has changed from age to age and is at present centered, depending on the sector, on common grace, inspiration, and the self-sufficiency of God. But at every point the whole issue is reopened. The whole of the faith is at stake. While past victories of the faithful are ostensibly reaffirmed, new interpretations are used to empty them of meaning and to borrow the victory for alien causes. Thus, Van Til rightly assesses the full scope of the common grace controversy. The significance of our discussion on fact, law, and reason for the construction of a Christian philosophy of history may now be pointed out explicitly. The philosophy of history inquires into the meaning of history. To use a phrase of Kierkegaard, we ask how the moment is to have significance. Our claim as believers is that the moment cannot intelligently be shown to have any significance except upon the presupposition of the biblical doctrine of the ontological trinity. In the ontological trinity there is complete harmony between an equally ultimate one and many. The persons of the trinity are mutually exhaustive of one another and of God's nature we argue that unless we may hold to the presupposition of the self-contained ontological trinity, human rationality itself is a mirage. Philosophers have through the ages sought for a principle of interpretation, such as scripture gives, the ontological trinity, but sinful human nature rebels against this obvious fact because it hates God, and prefers, as Vantil states, to speak of abstract principles of truth, Goodness and beauty, and of a God rather than the God. But God is our concrete universal. In Him, thought and being are coternimous. In Him, the problem of knowledge is solved, and the problem of time and history as well. It is not merely common grace, then, that is preserved by this approach. It is the whole of faith, and the whole of reality and experience. In the common grace controversy, some, on the one hand, sought to limit or obliterate man and others, God, as a result of their unbiblical principles. But in every deviation from biblical thinking, no matter how well-intentioned, there is a limitation or obliteration of some aspect of experience and reality. Van Til's defense of the faith is therefore a defense of the validity of the whole of life, because it is a defense and exposition of the biblical doctrine of God.